If you are like me, the choruses or refrains of songs seem to have the far more lasting value in that song than in the individual stanzas or verses. Oh, it is true that a certain verse or a particular stanza of a song can be very, very impactful in helping to express the sense of a chorus or a refrain. But it seems to me that the chorus itself, we could call it the main idea of the song or the pivotal point of the song's whole reason for the songwriter's point in writing it in the first place, undoubtedly has the greatest, most lasting impact of all. I think we would probably all agree with that. The various verses of a particular song seeks to support the chorus or perhaps even assist in clarifying the song's chorus, but it is certainly the chorus itself which buttresses the whole song. It gives the song its absolute foundation, and everything flows from that. And since these various psalms that we've been studying, psalm after psalm after psalm, 55 of them thus far, are actually words of songs that have been written down for us, and because of that, they are, of course, as songs designed for all of us as believers to sing. The psalm we're going to study on this day has, if you ask me, a very clear chorus, very, very clear, which is prominently repeated twice here in Psalm 56. First, in verses 3 and 4, if you have your Bibles there at Psalm 56, and then again with slight differences, very slight though, in verses 10 and 11. These particular words of verses 3 and 4 and verses 10 and 11, it seems to me, give the lyrics to this song of the Lord a clear and compelling chorus. This is a song, and the choruses in verses 3 and 4 and verses 10 and 11 actually allow us to do our outlining tonight because they accentuate the very form of this psalm which is underneath the title of our beloved Holy Spirit-inspired tune, and here is the title I've given it, A Sure and Solemn Declaration of Trust. A sure and solemn declaration of trust. We've already read Psalm 56 earlier in our service. And so I want to give you, because I think this song fits very well, this chorus in verses 3 and 4, and the chorus repeated again, the refrain in verses 10 and 11, gives us outside of those verses three stanzas. So, In a sense, you've got first stanza and then the chorus. And then you have a second and third stanza, and then you have the chorus again. Now, it's not quite how the psalm has been laid out, but because of those choruses, in a sense, at the beginning and in the middle, I'm going to go over these stanzas with us as though they were outline points, and then I'm going to talk about the choruses. So, let's talk about the first stanza in verses 1 and 2, and then we can also pick up 
verses 5, 6, and 7 as though this is the first stanza of our song. And if you want an outline point for the first stanza, it's this, bring grace to me, O God. That's the first thing that King David is shooting for in his prayer to God. And in this psalm, he's asking in this first stanza of this song to the Lord for God to bring grace to him. Notice how he does it in the first two verses. He says, be gracious to me, O God. That's where we derive our outline point, bring grace to me, O God. For, this is the explanation why David is asking for grace, for man tramples on me. All day long an attacker oppresses me. My enemies trample on me all day long, for many attack me proudly. You see the situation that David is in? And notice the repetitive nature of those two verses. All day long man tramples on me. All day long many attack me proudly. This is a challenge for David. He's in war. He's running for his life. No wonder he's saying, bring grace to me, O God. This is the ultimate challenge. This is not just the ultimate challenge for your spiritual life. This is the ultimate challenge also for your physical life. This is what David is saying. And then look down also at verses 5 to 7. Notice the same idea. All day long they injure my cause. All their thoughts are against me for evil. They stir up strife. They lurk. They watch my steps as they have waited for my life. For their crime will they escape. In wrath, cast down the peoples, O God. That is, cast down those people who are against me. David's running for his life. And we know that because of the superscription. Could you look back at it with me? Notice what it says, to the choir master, so we know that this is a song. And there's a certain rhythm to the song, which of course has been lost to us. That's probably what David means when he says a miktam of David. That's a musical term, and we don't know what it means in our present day, but what's going on? What does the superscription tell us? It's actually verse 1, this superscription in the Hebrew text of the Bible. And it says this, according to the dove on far-off terebinths. What does that mean? Well, perhaps this is a reference to a dove on a far-off tree. That's what terebinth means. That's a tree. And this If you remember in Psalm 55, do you remember? Go back to Psalm 55, just one psalm earlier, and notice what David says in verses 6 and 7. Oh, that I had wings like a dove. I would fly away and be at rest. Yes, I would wander far away. Well, you remember Psalm 55 is also a psalm in which David is being attacked. And he's being attacked so relentlessly that what he wants to do is flee. He wants to wander far away, and he might even see a dove above him. Or, because he is mainly 
on the outside running for his life, he probably sees doves all the time. And so he likens his life, or at least his desire, like a dove. I want to fly far away from my aggressors. And apparently he says the same thing here in Psalm 56. Oh, that I could be like a dove in a far-off terebinth tree. Why? What does the superscription say? This is when the Philistines seized him in Gath. Do you remember the Philistines? Do you remember a certain fellow of the Philistines whose hometown was Gath? What was his name? Goliath. This is Gath territory where David killed Goliath well before this. This is amazing. David finds himself in Gath. And that's probably not the place where you want to find yourself. Especially if you're still running from King Saul and you go from being out of the range of the aggressiveness of King Saul, even though he too is trying to end your life, and you go from King Saul right into the Philistine territory and you run into another king, the king of the Philistines. If you remembered when we studied Psalm 54, Saul is chasing David in order to kill him so that David would not be able to be the king of Israel. And then in Psalm 55, when I took you back to the historical account in the book of 1 Samuel, undoubtedly what was going on is the background to that psalm, this idea of David before the Philistines, and according to 1 Samuel 21, indeed, you can turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel 21, David now finds himself fleeing to, of all places, Gath of the Philistines, where David had killed long before this, as I said, Goliath. So look at 1 Samuel 21. We don't have all kinds of time to to gain all of this historical background, uh, but maybe just a few verses in 1 Samuel 21. And I'll let my friend John Kitchen, who's a faithful pastor in Stowe, Ohio, who's written a wonderful book. I meditate through this book often called Praying Through, subtitled Finding Wholeness and Healing in the Prayers of David. This is what John Kitchen says with a vivid historical eye on this very scene in 1 Samuel 21 and, of course, Psalm 56, where David is seen to be running again from King Saul. Listen to John Kitchen's words. Soon enough, David was again on the run, casting panicked glances over his shoulder. He looked for any place that might provide some sense of security. He found his way to Nob, where his friend Ahimelech was priest. The surprised friend's first question was, Why are you alone and no one with you? 1 Samuel 21.1 David wove a tale about top-secret kingdom business with information on a need-to-know basis only. The matter was so urgent that he'd been forced to leave without weapons or supplies. The faithful priest quickly gave David the sacred bread of the presence 
and delivered over to him the weapon at hand, the sword David himself had retrieved from the Philistine champion Goliath and had used to remove his head. David's next move was so bizarre that it can only testify to his feeling of utter insecurity. And David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said to him, Is not this David the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dance? Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. 1 Samuel 21, 10 and 11. Here, John Kitchen writes, is the epitome of vulnerability. Gath was Goliath's hometown. David was the notorious killer of their golden boy. Strapped to David's thigh was Goliath's own sword. And among whom did David slay most of his ten thousands, if not among the Philistines? When the safest place you can imagine is in the midst of your greatest enemy, you qualify for at-risk status. Isn't that so true? I mean, can you imagine? You're running from your own brother, the king of your own people, Saul. And you happen to run from that place because you believe surely you're going to be killed right into the hands of the most virulent enemies of Israel, the Philistines. And you run right into Philistine territory in none other than Gath, where Goliath has been the person they immortalized as one of their wounded, one of their assailed, one of their murdered, and the very murderer of such a one has come right into his hometown carrying Goliath's own sword. If you want to set yourself up for murder, this is how to do it. This is exactly how to do it. And by the way, according to 1 Samuel 21, 12, if you're still there, after the victory song was brought up by the servants of Philistine king Achish, the idea of Saul killing his thousands and David killing his ten thousands, the one about David, this mighty warrior, this man of valor, 1 Samuel 21, 12 says, and David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. That tells me that David's fear was so very real. In fact, my friends, so real that did you realize this is the only time in all of Old Testament history that records that David is fearing anyone but God himself. And the very same Hebrew word, by the way, for fear in 1 Samuel 21 is used right here in Psalm 56.3. When I am afraid, I will put my trust in you. So I ask all of us, take ourselves out of the historical context of David, of Achish, king of the Philistines of Gath, and put it in our own time. So what about you and me as a believer? 
as a believer in God, as one who loves the Lord Jesus Christ with all our hearts, minds, souls, and strength. What does a believer do when we're faced with such fear? You have those fears, don't you? I know you do. So do I. What do you do with such fear? Well, we assume that David's bizarre actions, the actions of a crazy man notwithstanding, that what he's trying to do is he's trying to cry out to God for grace, for mercy. Isn't that what he says in Psalm 56, 1? Be gracious to me, O God. And if you drop down to verses 5, 6, and 7 as we read them a moment ago, what does he say? For their crime will they escape, verse 7, in wrath, cast down the people's O God, cast down my enemies. He's crying out to God for mercy for himself and for his people and for God's vengeance, according to verse 7, upon the enemies of God. We ought to do the same thing that David's doing here. When you and I are at our intense, most abject place of fear and worry about the present or about the future, What do you do? What do you say? Well, we could say a lot of things to fellow believers. Pray for me. Help me. Come alongside me. I'm I'm scared to death. I don't know what to do. I don't know where to turn. And possibly David did that. But apparently in Gath, he's all alone. He doesn't have anybody else. So what does he do? He goes right to the Lord. It's not wrong to go to friends, fellow believers who are standing right next to you, but if you don't have anybody at the moment standing right by your side to help you get through the most fearful event of your life, what do you do? Well, you go straight to God, and what do you ask Him for? Grace. Mercy. Come before me, O God, with grace and mercy. I need you right now. I need you in the worst way, at the worst time of my life. Will you bring grace to me, O God? Do you realize that that's the first stanza or verse of this song? Bring grace to me, O God. And as soon as you sing the first verse, you go right to the chorus. Here's the second outline point. Here's the chorus. And you know what the chorus is? In God I trust. So he both asks for grace and he both trusts God for grace. And he exclaims in the chorus. This is the, this is the song of lament that actually in the chorus is a song of trust. Yes, this is a song in a minor key. There's no question about it. But it's also a song of trust. And here's the chorus. In God I trust. What do you do when you're afraid? Here's what he says in verses 3 and 4. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. That sounds so rhythmical, doesn't it? 
I think there ought to be a song sung to this. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise. In God, I trust. I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? I mean, if you take out the middle portions of these verses, you have what seems like a contradiction. Listen to it. When I am afraid, I shall not be afraid. But there's no contradiction there. You are in fear, but what do you do with such fear? You take fear and you replace it with trust. You say, do you do it immediately? No, none of us do that immediately. We're human beings. We're feeble and frail and as the dust of the earth. Adam, avam, is the word red. It means of the earth. We're made of dust. We're feeble and frail as dust. So what do we do when we're afraid? We will in our hearts as a prayer to God for grace and mercy, I shall not be afraid. Why? Because of what's in the middle of those two phrases. In God whose word I praise. In God I trust. I read this psalm to my dear wife before I came here. She's going through a hard time last three or four days especially, from a physical vantage point. I said, when you are afraid, put your trust in God, in God whose word you praise, in God you trust. You shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to you? This is the chorus. I think it goes from a minor key to a major. This is the great chorus to sing to our God, isn't it? What do you do when you're afraid? You consciously put your full trust in the God whose word you praise. Now, he could have said, did David, I want to put my trust in you. And he does say that. But notice he says, in God whose word I praise. Now, David, of course, was not just a king. He was also a prophet. The book of Acts tells us that David prophesied. So undoubtedly, part of the word that David received from God might have been an instantaneous word. God spoke to him audibly. Now, we don't have that, but guess what we have? We have the full revelation of truth in the 66 books of the Bible, 39 books of the Old, 27 books of the New, and what we have is none other than God's praiseworthy word. We have that too. And we have that just as quickly as David because all we have to do is turn each and every page and there's God's word. And this is what we praise. In God whose word I as a Christian praise. I mean, when compared with our God, David says, what can flesh do to me? What can King Achish of Gath do to me. He he can possibly take my body, but he can never take my soul. He might be able to slay me, yet like Job said, I will trust him. This This is our God. You know what 1 John 5 says? 1 John 5 says, here is the victory that overcomes the world. 
And if David were a new covenant believer, he might be quoting also not just Psalm 56, but 1 John 5. This is the victory that overcomes the world. What is that victory? Our faith. Our faith overcomes all of the Philistine army. King Achish himself, anybody else who's coming against me, and oh, by the way, that fellow King Saul, even he will have to be subject to the Lord our God. You realize that everything physically and everything spiritually, not just in this world, but also in all other worlds, all other planets, are all subject to the sovereignty of Jesus Christ in whose word we praise. So I ask the question of this first stanza in the midst of this glorious chorus, is this your faith? Is this the God in whom you trust? I don't mean just in a crisis. I mean Monday morning, 8 o'clock, when we go to work. I mean when there are days of great joy including days of great heartache? Do I trust God in the good times and in the bad? Do I trust Him for my whole life? This this concept of faith and this concept of David in verse 1, praying, bring me grace, O God, it comes as a result of living life as a pattern of faith and trust. Not the ups and downs where some days I'm trusting God and some days I could ask Him to please leave me alone. It's day after day after day a building up step by step by step, pile by pile by pile of faith so that when those rocky days come, when the actual day of my greatest abject fear comes, I can draw on all of those steps of faith that God has used to grow me up in faith in Christ. Isn't that true? You want to see this? Turn in your Bibles to Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 17. I want to show you what not only David the king says here in Psalm 56 about trust, but also the prophet Jeremiah and what he says about trust. This is one of my favorite passages in all of the Old Testament, Jeremiah chapter 17. And this is also a time when Judah needed to have trust. Notice what it says in verse 5, thus says the Lord. Now, whenever a passage starts out where we are being told, you better listen to the word of the Lord. You better take note, right? This is the time. Thus says the Lord. And I want you to know both the declaration on the negative side and then the declaration on the positive side, including an illustration of those who are cursed and an illustration of those who are blessed, And you'll see this beautiful parallelism of right and wrong, of faith and a lack of it. Jeremiah 17, 5, thus says the Lord, cursed, damned, consigned to judgment is the man who trusts in whom? Man. And makes flesh his strength. Or an alternate translation, if you have it down at the bottom of your your page, and makes flesh his arm. 
I always think of uh, bodybuilders when I think of this. They're uh, getting bulked up, and what do they do after a set in a workout? They go right over to the mirror, and they check out how bigger they are, how much more muscular they've become. And then 10 sets, and then a third day, and then a fifth week, and then a seventh year. And what they're doing is they're building up their body because they believe that it's the secret to their strength. But cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his arm, his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. That might have been David's temptation. He's fleeing from Saul. Now he's fleeing from Achish. Is it time to pack it all in? Is it time when things aren't going my way to act like a madman, to froth at the mouth, and to slip my way out of Gath so that I could say I got through this ordeal by acting like I was a psycho? Or is the better resolve to say, no, that was, that was a sin against the Lord because I wasn't trusting Him to deliver me. And what I don't want to do is like the cursed man whose heart turns away from the Lord. What's the illustration that is given by Jeremiah the prophet of this cursed man who's trusting in his own strength? He's trusting in mankind. Verse 6, he is like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabited salt land. Now, is that barren? Is that dry? I mean, who wants to be in that place? Who wants to be in the desert trying with all of your might and your own strength to find water, to find your spiritual sustenance? Ah, but verse 7, blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. Notice the contrasting parallelism. The person who's blessed is the person who trusts in the Lord. Why? Because the Lord can be trusted. I subjectively place my trust in the Lord because objectively the Lord can be trusted. And who am I? Well, I'm not cursed. I'm blessed. I'm blessed. And what's the illustration about him? He, this blessed man who trusts not in man, who trusts not in his arm, who trusts not in himself, not in mankind, but trusts in the Lord because the Lord is his trust, he is like a tree planted by water, sounds like Psalm 1, doesn't it, that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. I mean, that couldn't be clearer in its contrast. And it's all because we trust in the Lord because our trust is the Lord. He can be trusted. This is the chorus by Jeremiah. This is Jeremiah weighing in with David's psalm. Amen. Praise the Lord. I worship with you, David, because even though we're both men and only men, you the king and I, Jeremiah the prophet, here's the key. I am going to make the Lord my trust. 
I'm going to trust the Lord with my life. Let me ask you, do you sing this kind of chorus of trust in your heart? This is what we have to do every day. And it is for us maybe not the marauding enemy like the Philistines who come after me, but it is the spiritual warfare that wants to vanquish my soul. The kind of satanic battle that I wage every single day, like Ephesians chapter 6, with Satan and his minions who want to destroy my faith and trust. There's a second stanza. I want you to see it in verse 8 and the beginning of verse 9. This stanza we could call, Bring comfort to me, O God. Bring comfort to me. Not just bring grace to me, O God, but here in verse 8 and the first part of verse 9, bring comfort to me, O God. Bring grace and bring comfort. What does he say? King David says, you, verse 8, have kept count of my tossings, my wanderings. Put your tears, put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. When I call for what? When I call for comfort. That's what David is doing. Look, he's running for his life. He, he may even be physically running and thinking these things. And if he's thinking these things, or maybe he's found a mountain cave, and maybe he's inside the cave, and maybe he's asking God for grace, and now he's asking God for comfort because he is not only exhausted, but he's crying his eyes out. He's spent physically, spiritually, emotionally. And what does he do? He does what you and I do. We cry. That is a healthy emotion. It is something that we all do. And even when we think we're at the last part of our life, and our life will be snuffed out from us, we cry and we toss. And possibly, if the word is to be translated, another alternate translation, my wanderings, doesn't that fit so perfectly with what Dave's doing? He's wandering. He's running. And he says, you have kept count of my wanderings. You know every time I'm taking a running step. You know it. You're the sovereign God. And you put my tears in your bottle. Do you know that that was probably in the day that David was living, a kind of bottle that after they drank the liquid out of it, there were those who kept that bottle and may even have put their own tears in such a bottle because of this psalm, believing that to do so, God would take this bottle and remember all of their tears. Now, of course, the tears would eventually evaporate, which meant that the bottle itself became a symbol of the wanderings and the tossings of someone who is out of sorts and who needs God desperately. It's a bottle of remembrance. And this is what David is saying. He will take care of us. He will remember all of our sorrows. He's asking for comfort. 
And he says, my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. And you know, when I read that in Psalm 56, my mind immediately went to Matthew chapter 12, when it says that our Lord Jesus Christ, the ultimate prophet, the ultimate king, the ultimate priest, says about those who are blind and naked and disabled and tearful that he will not snuff out a smoldering wick and he will not cast aside a bruised reed. Isn't that tender? Our Lord Jesus, who says, I know what you're going through. I too am a man of sorrows and I will take care of you. And does he not say even in one chapter earlier, Matthew 11, 28, 29, and 30, come unto me, all you who are heavy laden, and I will give you what? Rest. Rest for your souls. David needs rest not only for his soul, but for his physical life. He needs God desperately. So I ask, who do you go to when you need comfort? Do you go to the Lord? He wants you to come to Him and crawl up into His lap and cry a good cry because He's sensitive to your needs. And He says, Come unto Me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. And He takes His divine handkerchief and He wipes our tears. And He says, I know you know this, but let me affirm it with you. I've got every one of your tears captured in my bottle. And I've written down every time you've been beleaguered and challenged in the scroll of the book of your life. Don't think for one minute, beloved, that God isn't the kindest creator who could ever be. He knows our frame, and He comes alongside us with a song. There's a third stanza, and I think it's David's own response to God, even though it's a prayer. Look at verses 12 and 13. Here's the third stanza. Let's call it, in David's own view, bring obedience to God, O my soul. See how he shifts a little bit? Bring grace to me, O God. Bring comfort to me, O God. First two stanzas. Now the third, bring obedience to God, O my soul. He's talking to himself. Oh, yes, he's talking to God. But here's what he says about his God and what he needs to do for his God. I must perform my vows to you, O God. David's telling God what David himself knows he needs to do because God has come to him in grace and God has come to him in mercy. And so what he says is the only thing you can say, and it is this, I must respond. I must respond to your grace. I must respond to your comfort. I mean, how many times is it, because it's so true in my own experience, would it be true in your experience? You're you're graced out of a jam by God. You're given comfort by God as He wipes your tears. And no sooner do you receive the grace, no sooner do you have His comfort. And instead of thinking about your thankfulness and your desire and your resolve 
to perform your vows of obedience to God, you completely forget His grace and His comfort, and you walk on because you're out of such a jam. It's true of all of us. We forget so easily. Or maybe this grace and comfort of God is so familiar to us that we ask for it, we receive it, and instead, like the, like the nine of those who were healed by the Lord Jesus Christ Himself, who turned and walked away and never said thanks. And there was only one who came to Jesus after Jesus healed him and said, thank you, thank you for what you've done for me. So what does David do? He says, I'm not about to be thankless, and I'm not about to run away after receiving grace and comfort. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to perform my vows to you, O God. I will render thank offerings to you, for you have delivered my soul from death. Yes, my feet from falling, that I may walk before God in the light of life. You see, that's what thankfulness does. It causes you to remember your God. It causes you to be thankful for His grace, to respond to His comfort, and you do. And when you do, you're responding to the light, the very light of life that you've been given. Do you see verse 13? That I may walk before God in the light of life. God, in grace, And comfort and obedience gives us light. We can see. Do you remember John 8, 12? Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus is the perfect fulfillment of that verse, that I may walk before God in the light of life. That's what we as New Covenant Christians can say. I walk in the Lord Jesus Christ, who's the light of life. In Psalm 36, 9, we studied it. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. In the face of Jesus Christ, He is light, and therefore we see light. He guides our path. In fact, I want you to see in verses 12 and 13, I want you to to notice the five truths that are given to us there. Do you see the first one? That you're going to perform your vows? That means that you're going to worship God. That's what you're doing here tonight. You're worshiping God. And then he says, I'll render thank offerings. I'm going to be thankful, and I'm going to show you by giving my offerings to you as an Old Testament worshiper would. Because you've delivered my soul from death, my feet from falling, then you're going to sing praises to God. You're going to declare what He's done for you, and then you're going to walk before God. And with all of those, you're going to turn right around and give all of your obedience to God because He's energized you by His Spirit to even do such works of obedience. Isn't this marvelous? I think it calls for another chorus, don't you? And that chorus is given to us right here in verses 9, 10, and 11. Notice the latter part of verse 9. This is the last thing I'll say. Verse 9b, this I know. 
Mark that down. Underline that. Highlight that. This I know, David says. This I know well. This is what I've come to know by experience, that God is for me. Doesn't that remind you of Romans 8? If God is for us, who can be against us? You know what we call that? Security. Security. This is our chorus. And the first chorus to be sung to God in praise is He's given me divine security. If God is for me. Yes, I know He is for me. And look at the next one. We'll call it direction. God whose word I praise. This God whose word I praise, He gives me His word, which means He gives me direction in life. He gives me security and He gives me direction. And notice the next one, assurance. Assurance. He gives me assurance. In the Lord whose word I praise, in God I trust. I trust Him. And so He gives me this assurance that He is for me. And then, I love this, boldness. I shall not be afraid. This is a guy who just said, I have so much fear, I can't stand it. And then he remembers who God is. And he says, I am afraid, I shall not be afraid. You say, can it, can it turn that quickly? Oh, yes, it can. And it must. It must. I must go from fear to faith. From temptation to trust. And then look at the eternal hope. What can man do to me? What can man do to me? I mean, really. Isn't Matthew 10, 28 true? Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Fear Him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Our Creator. What a chorus. I mean, I don't ever want you to read Psalm 56 again. And I put myself in the same category and not seeing in my heart a chorus to sing over and over and over again. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we ask you to bring grace and comfort and obedience to us so that we can in turn be vessels ourselves of grace and comfort and obedience. And our chorus, our refrain, is that you will provide for us as we praise you forever and ever security, direction, assurance, boldness, and eternal hope that man can't do anything to us that you don't allow and ordain. Oh, Father, let us now in our corporate prayer say, in God I trust. I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? In God, whose word I praise. In the strong and mighty name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, we pray in the power of the Holy Spirit to glorify you, our Heavenly Father. Amen.